Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to investigate the Scriptures with us as we continue to probe what is central to Jesus' own mission and ministry, his gospel about the kingdom of God. We've been pointing out in this series of programs that Jesus was a Jew who must be understood in his first century Jewish environment. There's a way of thinking amongst Jewish people. There's a basic vocabulary which drives their whole theology. It's a fatal mistake of biblical interpretation not to take careful note of the Jewish ways of thinking and speaking with which Jesus was so familiar. Jesus, you see, had been reared on the Hebrew Bible, what we now unfortunately call the Old Testament. Mary and his family had instructed him in the detail of the Hebrew Bible. Jesus himself found his own career there, outlined and prophesied as the Messiah. He was the promised Son of God, promised indeed to the house of Israel as that great descendant of David, destined one day to rule the nations with a rod of iron and to establish an era of unparalleled prosperity and peace across our globe. Jesus came bringing a typically Jewish message. He called upon the people to repent and believe that the kingdom of God was approaching, that they were to prepare themselves for entrance into that kingdom with the Messiah at the second coming of Jesus. Everything in the Bible strains forward to that great denouement of God's grand design, namely the establishment of peace on this earth. Heaven in the Bible is not the destination of the dying. Heaven as a place removed from this planet, as a super-celestial area in which disembodied souls play harps and so on, all of that is entirely foreign to the biblical revelation. He did, however, say that the meek were destined to have the earth as their inheritance. That's to say, the earth renewed and purified, renovated by the event of the second coming. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus is coming to rule and rule in this planet. He's coming back to the earth. That's the whole point of the Christian faith. That's its objective. The idea that we disappear to heaven as a disembodied soul when we die is completely foreign to the teaching of Jesus. And the sooner we drop that from our thinking, the clearer the Bible will become. If we drop the idea of heaven as the reward of the faithful, we can then begin to relate to Jesus sympathetically. Jesus always spoke about inheriting the kingdom, inheriting the earth, inheriting the life of the age to come. All Jewish people at the time of Jesus, as to say those instructed in the Bible, thought in terms of two ages, the present evil age, which is under the dominion of, of Satan, who is the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. And then following this present evil age, Galatians 1, 4, there was going to come, in the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, a wonderfully thrilling age of the kingdom of God on this earth. The whole point of Jesus' summons through his gospel of the kingdom was to invite people of all races, of all tongues, and of all nations to take part in that future kingdom of God on the earth. Listen to the words of Revelation 5, verse 10. Those people from all nations and tongues and races have been gathered together as one body of kings and priests, and they're going to rule 
upon the earth. Revelation 5, verse 10. They're going to inherit the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5. That doesn't sound as though Jesus believed in heaven as the destination of the dying or the objective of the Christian believer. Why don't we give up this heaven language and begin to quote constantly Matthew 5, verse 5, and Revelation 5, verse 10. If we abandon that traditional and cherished heaven language, and adopt rather the inheritance of the age to come, the inheritance of the kingdom, the inheritance of the earth as our objective, we will find the Bible coming alive for us as a brand new book. It will sparkle with new illumination and new light for us, because we'll be thinking as Jesus thought, instead of thinking as a Greek philosopher thought. You see, the faith was invaded from the second century onwards by alien ideas, which tend to confuse the gospel of the kingdom. And the sooner we give up those alien philosophical Greek ideas about the immortality of the soul, about a part of us which is supposed to be able to live on without the body, as soon as we give that up, and replace it with the biblical idea that the whole man dies and sleeps in death, and the whole man rises in resurrection to take part in the kingdom, then we will find the Bible becoming clear for us in an exciting and challenging new way. May I take a few moments to consider with you this critically important issue of the destiny of Christians in terms of their resurrection. A key passage in the New Testament in regard to the future of the faithful, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a section of Scripture in which Paul outlined in the clearest terms what Christians are to expect in the future. Paul began by expressing his alarm that there were some in the community there in Corinth who were beginning to doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ and therefore had lost faith in their own future resurrection. In verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said this, Now, if Messiah is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Messiah has been raised. And if Messiah has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also vain. As one modern translation has it, if there's no resurrection, then we have nothing to preach and you have nothing to believe. So resurrection is so fundamental to Paul that without it there's no Christian faith at all. Paul went on to say in verse 15, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we did witness before God that he raised Messiah, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised or resurrected. And if the dead are not raised, not even Messiah has been raised. And if Messiah has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, that is, if there's no resurrection. Do you see here that everything for Paul turns on the question of the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself and following from that resurrection the hope of resurrection for the Christian in the future. Paul here said that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that's to say the dead Christians, those who have died, have actually perished 
unless there is a future resurrection. I want you to notice from that verse that Paul did not think in terms of dead Christians having survived and gained immortality in heaven prior to the future resurrection. He simply said that if there's no resurrection of the dead, either of Jesus or of the Christians in the future, then Christians have died and that's it. They've perished. There's no survival of the Christian in heaven in the mind of Paul. In verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul went on, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Paul then goes on to make his most solemn plea, his most earnest protest in favor of the fact of Jesus having been raised from the dead and therefore of the hope of Christians being raised from the dead in the future. Verse 20 reads like this, But now Messiah has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. In other words, Jesus is the first to come alive from the dead. The rest are still sleeping. Jesus was indeed woken up from the sleep of death. The rest are still sleeping. But, Paul insists, they also are going to be woken up from the dead in order to take part in the kingdom in the future. Now, that question of sleeping in death derives from the Hebrew Bible. Daniel 12, verse 2 says that in the future, many who are sleeping in dust land, in the dust of the earth, if you like, in the ground, they're going to awake, they're going to waken out of the sleep of death in order to come into life and the life of the coming age, immortality. Daniel 12, verse 2. That's the framework for all of Jesus and Paul's discussion of resurrection from death. You first have to go into the grave. You have to sleep in the grave and you have to be raised from the dead at the resurrection. There's only one way into immortality and that is via resurrection of the whole person from the sleep of death. So back to verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. But now Messiah has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man, in this case Adam, death came, by a man, that's to say Jesus Christ, the resurrection from the dead also came. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Messiah, that's to say associated with Messiah, joined to Messiah, all shall be made alive or resurrected, but each in his own order. Now here's God's simple scheme for resurrection. Christ, the firstfruits, he, of course, was resurrected some 2,000 years ago. After that, those who are Christians, those who belong to Christ, will be resurrected at his coming, at his future arrival, at his second coming, that is. Notice that the dead are going to be raised only at the second coming. The Christians are not raised before that. They're not alive before the resurrection. They are raised from death to life at the resurrection due to occur at the second coming of Jesus. Verse 23 is a key verse in this whole discussion of the timing of the resurrection of the dead. Now, when Paul had finished discussing the timing of the resurrection for the Christians, in verse 24 he mentioned the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Paul went on to explain, Jesus must reign 
until he shall have put all his enemies under his feet. Now, what did Paul mean there by reign? Well, the kingdom, of course, is the time when Jesus reigns. But when is that kingdom? Is it a kingdom existing now? Is Jesus, in fact, reigning in his kingdom right now? Or is it a kingdom which begins at the second coming? In order to answer that question, we will refer to verses later in the very same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 50 of this same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said this, Now I say to you this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I'm going to tell you a mystery, that's to say, a secret about God's plan now revealed. We shall not all sleep, that's to say, we Christians will not all remain in the sleep of death, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Notice that carefully. When does this change from death to life come for the Christian? At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, Paul went on to say, and the dead will be raised, imperishable or immortal, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Immortality then is gained only at the second coming of Jesus Christ and not before. Our time is running out for today. We invite you to request from us our free booklet, What Happens When We Die? Join us again for our continuing discussion of Jesus' gospel about the kingdom of God.